0: Hi there, my name is Tim and my name is Luke and you're listening to the Recruitment Now podcast. We are passionate about recruiting. Each episode we share ideas
1: and insights into the world of recruiting from world-class recruiters and researchers. This podcast is for recruiters, HR professionals and anyone looking to improve their recruitment abilities.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to Recruitment Now and uh, we've got Jeff Fisher on our episode today. Uh, Jeff is a recruiter at Roven, where he focuses on recruiting the best people into the oil and gas industry for both owner-operator and engineering, procurement, and construction companies. His research interests include uh, recruitment best practices, bridging the academia, industry gap, HR, business trends, and analytics, and providing students and job seekers with the best possible information to find meaningful employment. So welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. Well, glad to have you on here um so that's your your formal bio that we basically stole from your linkedin profile but let's let's chat a bit about your background you have an interesting background for a recruiter and i guess if we're honest most recruiters have an interesting background but uh Tell us a bit about that background and how you got into recruitment.
2: Well, oftentimes that's the first uh, first thing people ask me is how the heck, Jeff, did someone with a PhD in biomolecular science get into recruitment? <laughs> um, and, and that's usually, uh, well, I, I really blame you, Tim. But uh, initially, when I finished uh, high school, I always knew I wanted to go into biomedical research and specifically cancer research. So I did a bachelor's degree, I did a master's degree, did a PhD, and, and of course uh, moved up to Calgary. Had an industry grant to work in industry, uh, doing some uh, some plant made pharmaceuticals here in Calgary. Unfortunately, that uh, that project didn't last too long, and I ended up at the U of C doing a postdoc in ag biotech. And at the end of, uh, of a two year uh, postdoc there, I was well working part time at nights. So I was freelance writing for an overseas company doing my postdoc and I just needed a change. So uh, yeah, that's how I ended up in recruitment. One of my mentors at the time said, uh, well, he quite literally cracked his knuckles and said, okay, let's get you hired somewhere. And his first piece of advice was, uh, the first thing you're going to do, Jeff, is you are going to reach out to every single contact that you have on LinkedIn, all whopping 78 or so contacts that I had. So I did that. And within two weeks, I had, I don't know, maybe eight informational interviews focusing on soft skills and directions people thought I should go. A formal interview with you, Tim, because you were one of the people that I reached out to. And
0: the rest, as they say, is history. Well, I think it was an an interesting journey. I I like to talk about the story here because I think a lot of recruiters had kind of a similar journey. They didn't dive right into recruitment. They indirectly fell into it. And so at the time I was managing a large recruitment team and Jeff contacted me and I had an opening at the time and I had a, you know, decently strong team in Calgary and I felt like I could take a risk and it wasn't a huge risk, but it was a risk on somebody who, you know, didn't have the recruitment experience, but had a lot of, you know, the fancy HR term transferable skills and so made the plunge and it worked out pretty well, I think.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's been a blast and. Geez, it's over five years now uh, since that transition. It really I has I think been. Uh, I think one of the key things here is is scientists tend to focus largely on the hard skills. You know, you can teach. I'm I'm very convinced you can teach anyone science or anyone how to use their hands in a lab but it's the softer skills, it's the presenting, the critical thinking, it's the ability to synthesize information and, and kind of poke and ask questions and really dive into a topic and, and do some research on it. Those are the comparable things. And then presenting in front of a large group of people, talking in front of a conference of two or three hundred people, those are all really important skills as a recruiter I think.
1: It's not, it's not unique. It's something I see a lot at Top Recruiter it's a question we ask in every interview. How did you get to become a recruiter? And the answer is always, I didn't try, it just happened. Nobody goes to school with the intention of become coming out the other end as a recruiter. But I like that you speak to the soft skills, that's what you were trying to find. What can, where can you apply the soft skills that you already have, like working with people? Uh, would you say that's something, Is that what is the number one soft skill that you'd say gives you that age of success as a recruiter?
2: Curiosity. I think that's the number one thing that I look for in any, any any candidate that I talk to or anyone that I talk to, for that matter, is do you enjoy what you do? Because that oftentimes leads into some very interesting conversations, and a lot of my colleagues uh, at uh, Roven will laugh whenever I start to, quote-unquote, nerd out uh, in front of them. and They go, oh, Fisher's got on one of his rants again. Okay, here we go. <laughs> right. But to your point, too, I have yet to meet a single recruiter who woke up one day and said, hey, I want to be a recruiter. It, it, I haven't encountered that yet. Everyone just kind of falls into it.
1: So tell us a little bit about your current role at Rovin.
2: So Rovin, we're the the technical subsidiary of ADECO, which is one of the largest uh, employment companies worldwide. And we focus primarily on kind of the technical roles, so engineering, uh, construction management, procurement, supply chain, uh, pretty much anything from, in oil and gas specifically, anything from senior level construction managers all the way down to data entry and, and, and data admins and admin assistants.
1: And would you say you're focusing more on the trades or? Yeah, primarily trades. Um, when I started with
2: uh, with Tim in my first, uh, first recruitment role there, it was scaffolders, laborers, welders, and that just kind of... Uh, I mean, it was high volume at the time, and, and so that translated very nicely into my role with Roven, and it's anything from, again, skilled trades all the way up to the, the people coordinating and planning maintenance projects, so anything in between, quite literally.
0: And I think our topic today, Jeff, is more about, you know, the oil and gas industry and specifically trades, although it might get broader there, because I think, I think we're unique in Western Canada. You know, if we have listeners from all over the world here and, uh we're based out of Calgary with this podcast with uh, Luke and I, and we're at the center of the oil and gas industry in Canada. And it's a very unique place to be in HR and to be in recruitment. So what, what have you noticed about that uniqueness here?
2: Well, only five years
0: of, of, uh, of
2: time spent recruiting tradespeople, right? So I suppose I've seen the very best when uh, when in June of 2014, oil was 120 some odd dollars a barrel. And uh, you know I've seen the worst when it was about $26 a barrel here in Canada. I think one of the major shifts that has necessitated a large shift in approach is that permanent employment or employment in general is not a guarantee, right? In particular, uh, for tradespeople, you quite literally work yourself out of a job as a tradesman. As a welder, once your your welding project is done, your job is done. So it has shifted largely from permanent employment in the oil and gas industry to largely contract-based specific scopes of work where you have a defined project and at the end of it, you know, you have to, a tradesperson has to be agile, they have to be ready to jump onto the next contract, they have to always be networking. So that really means that having a broad network of trades that you can touch base with and just simply feel comfortable calling up and asking a question, that's pretty critical in my experience.
1: Now the shift towards like what they're calling the gig economy or contract work is pretty huge all over in every industry. I'm wondering if there's more people working in contracts in these kinds of jobs does that push up the cost of those tradespeople to the company because they're now self-employed?
2: Generally speaking, they will. The, a company will define it. Right. There's about a fifteen to twenty percent difference depending on the employment agreement compared to a contract. I think the big thing is not necessarily the cost. I think it's the cost predictability. Right? If you're hiring a contractor at $50 an hour for a 10-hour day, you're hiring you're hiring them for $500 plus GST per day. There's no hidden cost of employment in terms of benefits, in terms of all those those additional little perks, RSP matching or anything like that. So, I don't know if that answers your question there. What
1: what I'm wondering is whether it's actually an opportunity for recruiters to rather recruit contract labor than permanent labor because the the income for the contract labor is so much higher and placement fees are typically a percentage of the income.
2: Well, the percentage fees are all going to be proportional, right? And because a lot of uh, tradespeople are now becoming contractors of their own free will because a lot of companies will now mandate that, yeah, I think it's certainly an opportunity, absolutely, and being able to have a solid network of contractors you can tap into and, and discuss roles, absolutely.
0: How does recruitment change if you're you know hiring a permanent position, for example, with the intention of that person being there for X number of years versus hiring a contractor who the intention is they're going to be there for weeks or months, etc cetera. How, do, how does the recruitment change? Like, what's different?
2: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, as a contract recruiter, you're largely focused on skill set because at the end of the day, they can do the job or they can't. They have the hard skills to do the one month or two month project or they don't, right? It's very cut and dry. Um, whereas for permanent uh, employment type situations, it's more fit for personality and then you train into the role as the person grows and adapts. Then you continue that e- evolution of that training so that they hopefully can grow the organization.
0: But do you ignore fit for personality and contract roles too? Because, yeah, the person might only be there for two months. But if he's a complete jerk or well, she's a complete jerk, <laughs> like how, how do you wrestle with that in the recruitment well, well, process? Well,
2: of course, I mean, personality is first and foremost, right? Because at the end of the day, particularly for in oil and gas, where safety is number one, right? And trust is therefore very important. You have to trust the people that you work with. But large uh, by and large, personality is still secondary, because if people are still in the oil and gas industry, they work safely, they know the environment, they know who to work with, and reputations get around, not necessarily, you know, um, concretely but certainly by word of mouth reputations uh, are very important
1: so you're hiring trades what would you say is the biggest difference between recruiting trades personalities or tradespeople versus the accountants the lawyers and executive positions and how the hell do you find them because most tradespeople are not on LinkedIn for example
2: well, LinkedIn it's starting to grow and I encourage any single one of my tradespeople. it's uh, on a weekly basis I get uh, numerous calls from tradespeople. Jeff I can't find work why not right and I walk them through resume advice I walk them through the importance of social media and a digital presence and the importance of having a network and, and being able to either text your friends but yeah lots of these people aren't on uh, aren't on LinkedIn right so you have to rely primarily on your network that's number one and word of mouth it's it's uncanny how quickly word of mouth you know I can mass email a group of say 50 welders and by the end of two weeks I'll have at least
1: 25 new so that's your strategy that's how you reach new people people who are not already on your list
2: well there's certainly a hierarchy I mean you post jobs you post on social media Facebook I'm starting to tinker with a little bit more but I think LinkedIn is still the tool of choice Right? And when you mass email people, word of mouth, it, it's many things. You can mine for resumes on Monster or on ZipRecruiter or on, on Indeed. Any of those are viable options. You have to take all the approaches you can, particularly if you have a very tight turnaround and you're looking for a large quantity of contractors. And even then, you're at the whims and mercy of the labor market. If everyone's mm-hmm. working, for example, this fall time, it's been turnaround season. Good luck finding an unemployed millwright. All of them have multiple offers at, uh, at any given time, and they want really? to lock down their next contract and then come November when the snow starts to uh, to really come down, uh, not like the minor little amounts we've had here, but when the snow really starts to come down in Fort Mac and turnaround season's done, these people will be looking for contracts again.
1: Okay, so what would you say is the big difference between recruiting tradespeople versus, let's call them, the office people?
2: Oh, tradespeople, they're pretty blunt. They want the details right up front so they can make a decision. They want to know rate, they want to know duration, they want to know location. At the end of it they will make a decision instantaneously based on that yes no but they also know i mean every single tradesperson knows that things happen projects get pulled scopes get pulled things change the duration shortens or lengthens they're inherently pretty flexible so they don't put too much word in a recruiter's mouth nor should they right we're at the whims of whatever anything from the weather to a client's requirements you know anything can happen so they're pretty flexible and they just roll with the punches a lot. They're a really flexible bunch, so they just want to know the basics. Sorry, they want to know it
1: all black and white up front. It's black and white. And, you know. and what about their focus on the future? I imagine people who get permanent jobs always wanting to know what are the future prospects down the road, how can I move up the ladder, how can I learn more? Does that apply to tradespeople as well, or is it, no, I just I just want to know that I'm going to be able to do my job and make an income? Some it
2: depends on the tradesperson. Some of them ask, well, Jeff, how can I get more into the maintenance gigs because they're more stable? And that makes a lot of sense, right? They don't want to be bouncing around for six month six week contracts, you know, and only have effectively eight months worth of work. They want to be in long-term employment that's at least stable and predictable, right? So a lot of the times they ask, Well, how can I get into, you know, the planning side of things? Or how can I what training can I take for that? So for contractors, there's usually not much growth. It's again, it's a defined project. But some of them will will take it one step farther and ask, how can I get into, what software skills do I need to get into the the planning and scheduling side?
1: And I meant to actually ask this earlier, but there's a, a platform like LinkedIn for tradespeople that has been built in Calgary. It's called Trades Life. Yeah. Have you heard of yep. it? You have, yep. okay. I've seen that, yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering why do you think something like that does not get adopted as well as something as LinkedIn does?
2: Well, I, th- I think... Um First of all, it's visibility, right? Maybe some trades guys don't know about it. Uh, I think another component is well, for a lot of trades guys, uh, you'd be surprised how many people, how many trades guys don't worry about their paperwork, right? They have someone else worry about their paperwork and they just go by word of mouth because they've never needed to use any additional tools, particularly some of the older generation trades guys. They've gone from contract to contract because they don't need such tools. And if they don't need such tools, why would they use them?
0: I want to loop back to LinkedIn. I feel like it's changed. I'd like to to hear your thoughts on that because five years ago when we worked together, LinkedIn and tradespeople didn't really mix. You know, they weren't on it. There's a few anomalies on it and you're saying it's now a lot more common. What, What have you seen over the last five years change there? I would say simply the numbers of
2: people on LinkedIn are significantly higher in terms of trades. Absolutely. And the way they're using it, they will now, you know, post an update looking for a new contract. Right? or welder available for, for new contracts, or something like that. And again, it comes down to visibility. I might not have something today or next week, but if I know, hey, wait a second, what's that welder's name on LinkedIn? He said he was available for a new contract. Let's just look him up and call him up. Boom. It comes down to maybe nothing happens right now, but down the road I might have something in a day or two. And it's uncanny how often I will talk with someone, well, I don't have anything
0: now, and then uh, quite literally, you know, five minutes later I'll have something. Maybe it goes back to that bluntness you talked about, because if you're an accountant, uh, maybe you've seen it, but I haven't seen an accountant say, hey, I'm available for work. There's almost a hesitancy or a subtleness towards looking for work in other professionals, but trades, it seems like it's more blunt or more open or more common to be looking for work. Absolutely, and it's marketing.
2: Yeah, and it's marketing. You know that you have to find a new new contract at the end of it. You know exactly what uh, your situation is, so you have to market yourself and be available to jump at the next role.
1: Now, it sounds to me like from all these instances, it's people who are locally here, they've already done the job, and now they're just looking for the next project. What do you do when you're in, for example, in the season, turnaround season, where they already have jobs, nobody's looking, but you need another millwright? Can you get people from outside of the country on a contract basis?
2: Not that I've encountered ever, no.
1: So that's almost impossible.
2: No, I haven't even tried. I don't see there's a need for it either, for that matter.
1: Okay, how come? When? Simply simply due
2: to the labor market, right? And oftentimes turnarounds are scheduled so that they're... And this isn't a perfect art, of course, right? But very often people will be able to move around fairly fairly agilely from one turnaround to the next, and they'll have their own schedules made so they can either provide a yes-no answer on the phone or by email, or they know someone who is available who's working maybe on a different turnaround or a different project who will become available and they pass over contact
1: information. So there's never that like national... Need that there's way too few mill rights, for example, for Canada, that then we need more mill rights, for example, and that you can access them on a really quick basis?
2: Well, I don't necessarily know about the labor market uh, in terms of overall Canada, because the oil and gas industry is, is my main focus. I would say that just without any empirical evidence, I would say that Fewer trades guys are in the oil and gas industry, and a lot of trades guys have probably left the industry. Mm -hmm. I don't have any data to back that up, but it seems like maybe there are fewer. Maybe they're shifting to other industries.
0: So I guess one of the interesting parts of recruiting in the trades is you've alluded to this, but the high volume. You know, Years ago, I interviewed a recruiter from Google and talked about her experience, and she was actually at one point given one role, one role only, and she had three months to fill it. You know, and that's almost the polar opposite of recruiting in the trades. That might be a shorter period of time. But talk to us about how you, how you manage your time there when it is high volume.
2: Um, well, my main tool is, to be perfectly honest, Excel. Because you have all the data, you can, you can pop in whatever Excel uh, criteria you want. You know, location, phone number, mass email lists, skill sets, tickets, uh, training credentials, anything like that. You have it right at your fingertips. And it's arguably easier to use that than an applicant tracking system. That's my number one tool to keep organized. You have to send out one of the things that you know many recruiters get a bad rap for, and rightly or wrongly, so depending on the recruiter, is feedback, right? Well, Jeff, this person disappeared. Well, that's fine. Things change, right? And the key thing is just being understanding and being upfront again and communicating with you guys. I like to send out mass emails when I'm working on a project, mass emails every Friday. Here's where we're at, here's what I'm looking for, here's any changes, here's the best knowledge, and sometimes I don't have much knowledge, but just keeping people in the loop is really, really important for them to know as well. And inherently trades guys, sorry Jeff, I picked up a new new contract here, it pays a little bit better, it's a bit longer term, okay, fair enough, right? Because at the end of the day, people, particularly trades guys, many of them are very family-oriented, right? They do what they need to provide for their family, and rightly so, and they will make their decisions based on that. So, so long as recruiters understand that and are organized with it and, you know, there's no hard feelings, maybe the next time, the next project will work out.
1: So, I find that interesting that you mentioned that Excel is almost a better applicant tracking system than any other applicant tracking system, because that's where it would have started, right? most smaller agencies would first just have an excel sheet maybe they'll have a google excel sheet because you can link things online (laughs) and store your data not on your pc so even if your pc crashes you have a backup so would you, would you say Excel is your best friend better than an applicant tracking system?
2: Well, I think both have their uses, right? An applicant tracking system, obviously, you need to collect a lot of information. But for just a glance, for, for mass emailing people and just copy-paste email addresses into a BCC line, absolutely, absolutely easier than an ATS. And again, I'm not speaking for every ATS, I just, this works for me.
1: So mass emailing or being able to email the applicants relates more to a CRM, like salespeople yeah. would have yeah. a CRM. So, you, so for recruiters, you want an applicant tracking system that can also be a CRM. That is what you'd need if you wanted to replace your Excel system.
2: Could be handy, but then again, the fancier the tools, the more expensive. The more expensive, yeah, the more expensive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I guess we we've talked about LinkedIn a little bit. Now, I do want to loop back to that a bit more um, in terms of how you've specifically used LinkedIn. You know, you, you've talked about, you know, you put postings up, say, hey, I'm looking for this. But have you, have you done anything else that's innovative with LinkedIn?
2: Oh, I'm starting to toy with, with providing kind of feedback and, and value to my network. Um, LinkedIn, it's becoming too dilute, and it drives me absolutely nuts because you'll see cat videos and animal videos and, and various things that don't necessarily add value to uh, what you're trying to do. Right. LinkedIn is primarily designed for networking and for job seeking, and yet it's becoming too Facebook ish, which I don't like. So I make sure that any of my posts are directly related to something, some important topic. So I'll post on anything about the importance of being visible online to some of the metrics that I've done with, with LinkedIn posts pertaining to resume advice or, or anything like that. Or you know, this is in addition to any of the jobs that I get, which instantly I just post on LinkedIn because that it, it expands your network very rapidly as well.
0: So why do you do, and I've seen some of your posts there, the advice type posts, like what, what, what's the motivation there in doing that? You're not getting paid for this for advice. There's professional resume writers out there that would pay people for the same advice, but why do you do that? It's simply the right thing to do. Right? If you believe in karma, it, it all comes back. And if you look at
2: it from a business sense, well, first and foremost, it's visibility, right? If people see that you're trying to help people, that's important, right? never mind the fact that you're helping people just inherently is important, but it also provides an opportunity to get feedback, to get a conversation started, right? And not only that, but if you're providing a client with a series of resumes and you can provide them with higher quality resumes, inherently that kind of feeds itself, right? you're helping trades guys find work and you're increasing the likelihood that you can help them find work for your clients as well. So it really comes a full circle with, with providing advice and feedback
0: to tradespeople. And, and again, advice is free. So why not? So what comments do you get back from the, and I know it's not exclusive to tradespeople in this case, but uh, what comments do you get back from them when you have those posts out there? usually pretty positive, right? The problem with
2: you know resume advice type posts is, well, resume, it, it's subjective. There's as many opinions as there are recruiters looking at the resume, right? So you have to take it a critique with a grain of salt. I simply post what I look for and if others look for it and they have different feedback, absolutely, okay?
1: So I must say there's there's a lot of people popping up around town who offer a service to help people get their resume up to scratch. What do, you th- what do you think about that for tradespeople? Is it really, is resume a really n- necessary thing? Or are you not just wanting to know what are the tickets or skills you're certified for, and where did you work before?
2: Ooh, that's a, a tricky one to answer, and you're putting me on the spot there. I think having a resume as a tool for a tradesperson is important in terms of the actual resume writers to produce a high quality resume. Well, when you start to look at applicant tracking systems and the algorithms used to screen out uh, screen out applicants, um, and you, you look for keywords or, or safety credentials or welding credentials or trade credentials or whatever you're looking for, I think it's important for tradespeople to kind of be aware of it. But again, word of mouth will precede that, right? in, in my
1: opinion. So the networking value is even beyond applications
2: uh, absolutely and well let's look, let's uh, pose another question back to you if you were a tradesperson would you trust a, a recruiter to, you know to, to find your candidates for you or would you trust a, d- would you trust another welder that you've worked with
1: so what are the networking opportunities for those tradespeople? it's easy for white collar people to find networking events you can find meetups you can find something on eventbrite there's tons out there even specific to your industry but where do trades hang out
2: usually at site it's i've worked with this person before and therefore i know him by reputation he's quality work and
0: but how do you get how do you access that because i think what luke's trying to say is like as a recruiter if you want to expand your own talent pool there's the online components but you could host these type a meetup events and we see those happening throughout calgary and throughout western canada but how do you hack that and short of actually physically being at site in the lunchrooms, great question
2: which i had an answer for that
0: one <laughs> so, so if you have any ideas
2: so you need to
1: get into the lunch rooms at site <laughs>
2: well that's again
1: referrals are are everything
2: your your name and your personal brand in the industry is absolutely
1: everything so personal branding for you as a recruiter is actually a really important aspect of your daily job. Absolutely. It's critical.
2: And uh, it's simply no BS. No BS and follow through. I think those are the most two most important things. And no recruiter is going to be perfect. I'll be the first to admit sometimes I drop the ball on the follow through and things drop off. Right. But that's why you're perfectly that front. And if you goof up, you own it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think,
0: you know, that, that kind of wraps up our conversation here and some great tips on using LinkedIn you know, from, to a, a unique people group or a unique candidate group with tradespeople? I think a lot of what we talked about here today could apply to other positions. And I guess, you know, one last question there before we do wrap up, but uh, if you take what you've learned from recruiting tradespeople, how do you think it applies to other types of positions? Um, I think the key thing there is be
2: blunt, be upfront with expectations, be upfront with the position, don't sugarcoat anything and be perfectly honest with absolutely everything. People respect that. Right, be it a tradesperson, be it a senior-level construction manager, be it uh, an admit assistant. Again, it's it's all about how you treat people at the end of the
1: day. Yeah. I actually have a last question that I'm suddenly yeah. wondering about. I'm wondering whether you'd get better response from tradespeople if you texted them than emailed them. It depends. Sometimes you you do indeed get uh, get
2: texts, and I have a couple of trades guys that regularly text
1: me and check in. Absolutely. And and when you reach out. Uh, have you noticed a difference in the response ver- when you're reaching out via email as a BCC versus no. having a text system?
2: Usually I'll, I'll take two approaches. Usually I will call them directly because a text is is impersonal, right? Same with an email. So I like to take both approaches unless it's a huge number of tradespeople that I'm BCCing, right? You know, I like to have that direct conversation even if it's a quick three-minute conversation, checking in, you know, seeing where things are at.
1: Gotcha. So interesting how this compares to the white collar world and the blue collar world. Really, really interesting. I think there's lots of room for improvement. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's almost an ignored part of recruitment, yet sounds like a huge monetary opportunity given the fact that there's so much contract work and contract work is typically at a higher price point. Usually, yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming in, Jeff.